1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Guardian First Book Award winning writer, Patina Gapper on her debut novel, The Book of Memory. Petina Gappa is a Zimbabwean writer with law degrees from Cambridge, Graz University and the University of Zimbabwe. Her debut story collection, An Elegy for Easterly, won the Guardian's first book prize in 2009. And her debut novel, which we're going to be talking about today, is the Book of Memory. So, Patina, welcome to The Glattens.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Tell me roughly what this book is about, then.
0: It's a novel about a woman who is writing for her life, quite literally, because she's been imprisoned Mm -hmm. in Chikurubi Maximum Prison, which is the largest um, prison in Zimbabwe for women. And she happens also to be the only woman on death row. So her lawyer has asked her, tell me everything you can remember about the circumstances that led to the murder of the person that you've been accused of killing. And so she basically starts the story of how she met this this man when Mm -hmm. she was a nine-year-old child.
1: And so it's literally that, that address to a person this a journalist, an exactly. American journalist. Exactly. In that sort of, you know, notebook format that she's writing in prison. Yes. But also that format enables you to sort of go switch so sort of back and forth
0: Exactly. as well. You know, p- part of it is that because I, I was a novice writer when I started writing this novel, I just didn't trust the first person because I always, you know, when I read first person novels, I always think, who is this I? Why is this yeah. person speaking? And I know that you're supposed to, there's this fictitious thing you're supposed to imagine that you're getting into a character's mind and so on. But I, it just always struck me as a little bit artificial. Mm-hmm. So I use this um, mechanism of the notebooks and the journalist as a way of justifying the I. You know, the story you have asked me to tell you, it's not a story that I would tell naturally, but you've yeah. asked me to tell you, so this is the story, you know. And it's more—it's almost
1: more artificial but you sort of draw it's, it's attention to the It's more artificial, but exactly, I, yeah. I
0: draw atti- attention to the artificiality of it. And I think now I probably wouldn't have written it in that way. I probably wouldn't have written it if I was writing the story now because mm-hmm. I think I'm much more comfortable with that first person. But when I started writing this in 2007, I just wasn't confident in that voice.
1: So how different was writing a novel to the short stories? Because I said your, your collection of short stories won the Guardian First Book Prize, mm-hmm. and then this is a novel, and I do understand that you're, you're, um, you you prefer the format of short stories, is that right?
0: I do, I think. I mean, I it sounds terribly pretentious if I say I prefer short stories to novels, because I've only written the one novel, right? But I, I really do enjoy writing short stories, and... What I love about short stories is just you have just a small space in which to make a to make an impact. Whereas with a novel, I'm sure you've read novels where you skip over pages. Mm-hmm. And I always feel it's terribly unfair to the writer because the writer probably slaved over those pages that you're skipping over. But when you're writing a novel, you've got so much room to maneuver. Sometimes mm-hmm. you wander off in, in, in the wrong direction, you know. And also the fact that I don't have a lot of time to write makes me prefer the short story I have. Very little time, very little space, and we should make a big impact.
1: We should say that you know you're also you're a lawyer, and that is your job. Yes. You're writing in, yes. in your spare time.
0: Yes, but, that's right. That's
1: right. So, memory. Let's talk about memory. Who is she?
0: Memory is a woman who is in prison in Zimbabwe, and she has this distinct quality about her that she's a woman who suffers the condition known as albinism so she's an albino woman in Zimbabwe and being an albino in Zimbabwe makes you immediately visibly different Mm -hmm. and she's somebody who thinks that her parents sold her or maybe they did maybe they didn't that's like one of the mysteries at the heart of the novel she thinks that her parents sold her to this man Lloyd that she's now been accused of killing when she was nine years old so she's grown up with this duality Mm -hmm. of being Supposedly black, but not looking black. Mm-hmm. And she's also grown up with um, this you know, sense of unfairness that you know, her parents cast her off. And so she has a sort of a resentment towards this man who, who is pretty much her adoptive father, mm-hmm. as well as towards her parents, especially her, her mother. She has very fond memories of her father, mm-hmm. but not so much her mother.
1: I want to talk more about the status of, uh, of being an albino in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, like quite obviously that she stands out from everybody else, but there's also like a, there's a sort of cultural suspicion of her as well. As yes,
0: matter. that's right. Because, you know, in societies that don't live with science, anything that is different is a sign that the person is cursed or that the family, there's Mm -hmm. a curse upon the family. Even disability, any kind of disability, any kind of difference is seen as a sign that the ancestors are not pleased. Mm -hmm. That's in the traditional uh, worldview of uh, Shona culture. So I also wanted to explore that idea of the curse. And in this novel, there literally is a curse, as we find out. I I don't want to spoil it for the reader, so I won't say what the curse is, but we find out that the family at the heart of the novel is under a strong... Persuasion that there's, they're somehow cursed, that mm-hmm. there's a sort of a family curse, you know. But, but for me, the, the way we treat albinos and anyone who's any, who has any kind of disability in Zimbabwe, is it, it almost, there are even words for people with al- albinism or for people who are disabled that depersonifies them, mm-hmm. you know. Like in English, you talk about a disabled person you would not really ever talk about a cripple because it's, it's such a, a pejorative word. Whereas the normal word in Shona, would be the equivalent of cripple. Mm-hmm. You would never say a person is disabled. You would say the person is a cripple. Mm-hmm. So I also wanted to explore how we view difference in, in our in our society, how anyone who's different in any sort of way is marked as an almost an outsider.
1: And you do. I mean, in the novel, you play with that tension of of the sort of beliefs in both, well, I guess witchcraft is one of the things I, I want to talk more about, but traditional medicines and things, mm. and also modernity. So we're at a point in history. This novel is sort of set in what the 1980s, roughly. Um, so a point where it's obviously it's in Zimbabwe. It's post the um, the the change from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, just, mm. um, and the country is modernising, but there is still this. All of those sort of traditional beliefs amongst, amongst the families.
0: That, that's such an intelligent reading of it because that's exactly what, that's one of the questions that, I, that I've that i been grappling with. And I have to say that that element really took shape when I moved back to Zimbabwe mm-hmm. for three years because initially I started writing this novel in, in Geneva and then I spent two, three years or so trying to write it and then I, I took a career break and moved to Zimbabwe for three years. And it's only when I found myself once more immersed in Zimbabwean society that's when I realized just how absolutely relevant to everyday life this tension was. Mm-hmm. That it's not just an academic thing. This tension between the traditions and modernity—it's a lived reality for a good many people. So, on the one hand, you have people who are Christians who go to church, and if their if their children are sick, they, they visit you know the hospital. But sometimes something happens, and there's a breakdown, and the doctors can't cure whatever it is that mm-hmm. the child is suffering from those parents are most likely to go and consult a traditional healer. It's, it's almost like testing every option or yeah. crossing off every option possible. You will do anything to save your child, you know. So if prayer doesn't do it, if medicine doesn't do it, there's also the other mm-hmm. the other forms of belief, which is when you try to divine the cause of the illness and so on. And so the more I spent uh, time in Zimbabwe and just observed the society, talked to people, the more I realized that all of these beliefs that seem like superstitions are very... Very real to a lot mm. of people. So witchcraft, for instance, is uh, people believe very strongly in, in, in witchcraft. One of my favorite stories is um, what happened in, I think, 2004, when the government repealed what was called the Witchcraft Suppression Act. Mm-hmm. It's a statute from 1898 that was imposed by you know, the, the colonialists, the colonial administrators, who wanted to stop people accusing each other of witchcraft. So they decided to create this new law that made it a crime to call anyone a witch. So it drove witch finding underground, mm-hmm. right? And then in 2004, government decided that they're going to repeal the Witchcraft Suppression Act because it makes absolutely no sense. And there was a headline in the Herald, which is the government newspaper, that says, "Government legalizes witchcraft." <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that's what the government didn't actually legalize witchcraft. They just, you know, repealed an, an old statute that was not relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. But I just love the idea of um, the legalization of witchcraft.
1: I was going to say, when you, you, know, you were talking about the influence of, of beliefs on society and that sort of, you know, the crossover with the modernizing society, there's a fantastic a, a story from real life in the book that you. you, you into the, um, well it's one of the, the fellow prisoners that has, that has committed this, this story about the diesel from Oh, the, the
0: diesel Nanga <laughs> That's my all time favourite story from Zimbabwe and it just, it works on so many levels Basically what happened is that uh, a few years ago a very clever woman with a very basic education decided to pull a spectacular stunt and claim that she had somehow managed to Persuade one of her ancestors to produce diesel from a rock, mm-hmm. and this is, was the thing that was going to save the nation. And what is really astonishing about it is such was the desperation of the Zimbabwean government that they actually sent a cabinet of ministers. So you have, you know, people like one particular minister with a degree in chemistry. You know, you have a, a minister who's got a degree in medicine, and mm-hmm. these are educated men. They are not fools by any means. All of them took off their shoes and they were clapping in and, and Thanksgiving for this diesel that was coming from a rock. And then you sort of think, hang on, wait a minute. If it was natural petroleum or black oil, you, it might make some sort of sense at some sort of level. But it's diesel. <laughs> it's a fractional distillate of petroleum. It cannot come from a rock. It's a man-made product. What are you thinking? But that picture is just such a... I actually have a picture of it in my office. The minister's sitting around clapping and... This diesel is being piped from a, from a hose pipe. And you start thinking, what a very thoughtful <laughs> ancestor this is. You know, he's even provided a means to get the diesel out, you know. But I just love that story because I always say that um, if I had the courage of my convictions, I would write The Story of Zimbabwe as a comic novel. But then nobody would believe it, so... <laughs> I'm Kate Hamer, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a podcast about ideas and culture.
1: One of the, the other aspects of, I, mean, I was going to say Shona culture, I don't know if it's, if, if it's a wider thing, that I, I really enjoyed in this book and I wanted to talk to you more about is names. So everybody has more than one name. They've got you know, their given name and then a name they've sort of adopted, almost a nickname. But also the, the Mayan bar thing, which I presume is, is mother and father, but also that they have a sort of an adopted name as well. Tell us about.
0: Yeah. Tell, tell me about that. No, that's that's the thing I love the most about Zimbabwe, actually, in terms of some of the cultural things that I that I hope we never lose is the, the naming traditions. Mm-hmm. The best way to illustrate it is to talk about an actual person. So I'll tell you about my grandmother, who uh-huh. had five names in her lifetime. Her given name, this is my my mother's mother. Her given name was Shoorai, and then her Christian name was Kliana. And then much later on in life, she started to take snuff, you know, like mm-hmm. smoking, you know, taking snuff uh, up, up her nose. And she was given a nickname, Vamputa, which means the snuff taker, right? So I knew my grandmother as Mbuya Vamputa, you know, the, the snuffer, you mm-hmm. know, the snuff taker, right? And then she then had a, she had children. So then she was also called after her first child, Mairati. And then when she became a grandmother, she was called after her oldest grandson, Mbuya Wataona. You know so she had five names in her lifetime uh one that she was given at birth one she was given at baptism one that she was given because of her habits a sort of a nickname and then two that she was given because of her descendants and and that's how we that's how important names are to to zimbabweans but in terms of the names that you're given at birth your name is always meaningful in some ways. I'm addicted to the website Mumsnet, I don't know if you know it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but one of the things I love is um, the baby names uh, forum, you know, uh, we're, we're stuck, we can't find, you know, the right name, can you help us, what do you think of this name and so on. But in well, you would never just randomly name a child because you like the sound mm-hmm. of the name. No, the name has to mean something, not only to the child, but also to the immediate family. Yeah. So my name is not my own, I was named for my aunt. So you can name a child after a person Mm -hmm. but you can also name a child arising from the circumstances of the child's birth or something that happened in your family. So there are a lot of names that are called polygamy names. There are names that are given by mothers in a polygamous setting like Muchaneta, meaning you shall be tired. Mm -hmm. And that's meant to be a message to to the other wife. Like, oh, you think this is something. Well, you'll be tired soon enough. And then there are names that are to do with uh, the circumstances of your family. So if you're... If you were born during a time of great suffering, you'll mm-hmm. be given a name that reflects that. Now, the complication is then when those names are translated into English. Yeah. And that's when we have names like memory. Yeah, like, they're often
1: like verbs. Exactly, <laughs> like
0: more blessings, yeah. like gift. I mean, and I think they're lovely names because the meaning behind it is mm-hmm. so special. But they don't always translate well into English. You know, like um, there are children called hatred, <laughs> you know. Um, and then on the other hand, they're children called praise. I even know somebody called More Memories and somebody called Furthermore. You know, and you sort of think, I understand the concept behind the name, but it doesn't quite translate so well into English. But I actually think that it's a it's a beautiful thing to yeah, name a child. You'd
1: like to be called Furthermore. Like to be called name, furthermore. Yeah. I can
0: call you Furthermore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I wanna bring Lloyd in and let's talk about who Lloyd is. Hmm. There's still the sort of last vestiges of a uh, small group of, uh, the sort of colonial settlers that are still living in Zimbabwe. And Lloyd, I guess, is part of that world, and that's the world that memory latterly grows up in. So tell us a little bit about that, yeah. that society.
0: OK, let, let me start by saying that um, to people who don't know the history of Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe was the last African colony to be independent, and that was in 1980. And prior to that... Zimbabwe had experienced 90 years of colonial rule mm-hmm. from 1890, when exceptionally, Zimbabwe was a, co- a country that was invaded by a private company under royal charter. Mm-hmm. You know, the British South African company, Cecil Rhodes' company. And then it's because of Cecil Rhodes that the name Rhodesia came about. So it was almost like his personal fiefdom.
1: And
0: Cecil the Lion. A Cecil the Lion. Well, let's not talk about Cecil the Lion, but maybe later. <laughs> <laughs> So Zimbabwe was colonized in 1890 and then became independent in 1980. And so for that 90-year period, Zimbabwe was ruled by a white minority regime, mm-hmm. and they are whites and they are whites, just like they are blacks and they are blacks. Mm-hmm. There's no question at all that uh, there was inequitable distribution of land, for instance, and you had to find a way of resolving the land question in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. There's, there's absolutely no no, no contest, but. What the recent politics in Zimbabwe, the recent racialized politics have done, is to give the impression that all white people were the same, right? To be white is to be a villain. To be white is to be bad. To be white is to be a white farmer. Mm -hmm. To be a white farmer is to unjustifiably occupy the land. All whites are farmers. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of equation that has come out of this sort of like racialized understanding of our history. But the truth is actually that there were a lot of white allies in the struggle for independence, Gabe and the other liberation struggle heroes. Mm-hmm. Some of them are even buried at uh, the Heroes Acre. Guy Clutton-Brock is a white is a white man who was buried at um, at, at Heroes Acre and is recognised as a Zimbabwean hero. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to pay a little bit of a tribute to some of the white heroes, like people like Lloyd, who who did small things, small but important things. Mm-hmm. People like Peter Garlick, who was a, an archaeologist, who really suffered. Because of his theory that Great Zimbabwe was built by black people, yeah. the Rhodesians said no. It was the Phoenicians that you know came down from wherever it is uh, they, they came down from to build mm-hmm. this city and then just went back. You know, so they built the city just for the hell of it. You know, like it was kind of a, a Lego in Africa for the Phoenicians, right? And Peter Garlick said there's a lot of evidence to support that this is the work of people who live locally, black people. And he suffered because of that. His career suffered quite considerably. And so I'm interested in those stories as well. I'm I'm interested in telling the the stories of the largest Zimbabwean population, the black people of Zimbabwe, but I'm also interested in some of the interesting work that some of the white Zimbabweans have done.
1: I was going to say, but of course, they, you know, historically everybody lived separately. So you sort of contrast where memory grows up, which is the um, Mufakosi...
0: Yes, the township.
1: Um, Windsordale, which is the, the area where all of the, the you know the, the whites live.
0: Oh, but Umwindsdale is not just where the whites live because Umwindsdale uh, is much more special than that. Um, I drove th- from Gatwick Airport yesterday through Red Hill and Box Hill. That's kind of like on Winsdale. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. You have this huge, huge estates. It's almost like these sort of like farming estates in the middle of the city. So it's these beautiful old houses, and you'd have like your own hill. And then there's a little house on top of a hill and Mm -hmm. then you see your neighbour from a distance and there's your neighbour across there. So, Um Umensdale is a very interesting suburb in Harare because it's so different from other suburbs. You've got, you know, these large houses and large properties. So I wanted that contrast to play out, because uh, I could have put her in any other suburb, you know, Borrodale or Highlands. Those are also, you know, wide suburbs. But I wanted that particular area because I, I really wanted to talk about that Windsordale community where you have, like, 30 families on, you know, land, you know, that covers a quarter of Greater London or something like that. Yeah, yeah. and they're
1: all, like, very far apart from each other.
0: Very far apart from each other, Yes. So it was also to create that sense of being isolated in a physical as well as in, a, in an actual way.
1: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Patina Gappa and we're talking about the Book of Memory. Patina, as you mentioned, memories in prison in the present day in this, for the whole of this novel. She's in Chikurubi Prison, which is a, a a real life prison in Zimbabwe. And you're, I mean, you're a lawyer, so I just wondered how much of how much of that comes from your own. Work
0: experience? Mm. Actually, actually, none at all. Because I'm not a criminal lawyer. Uh, I I do international trade Mm -hmm. law. You know, I I represent governments, uh, developing country governments, in the very curious and peculiar world of world trade law in Geneva. So the kind of legal questions that arise in this in this novel are not questions that I've ever had to deal with. I, I worked for six months in Zimbabwe as a lawyer, but I never handled a criminal trial. So everything I know about criminal law is something that I studied at school at university in the mm-hmm. first year and also just talking to my to my lawyer friends. So for me this the, the legal side of the novel, especially the prison, was also a work of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Because I I did think I would put I should visit Chikurupi prison. But the authorities who ran the prison wanted me to sign the Official Secrets Act yeah. and not write about it. So to me, it sort of felt pointless to visit the prison and then not be able to write about it. So the Jikrubi of this novel comes mainly from my imagination as well as from research. So I read a lot of um, accounts of prisoners' lives in mm-hmm. Jukrubi And one of the books that was really important to me is a, is a book called A Tragedy of Lives, which is a collection of memoir pieces by mm. former women prisoners... And what I found really interesting was their relationship with the with the gods a very human relationship. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just one-sided authoritarian. And then another book that um, helped me a lot, and that I acknowledge in the, in at the end of the book, is uh, Simon Mann. Mm-hmm. You know Simon Mann, the Wonga coup plotter? The old Etonian who ended up spending yeah. uh, time in prison in Zimbabwe and yeah. Equatorial Guinea. Possibly the only man to do that. Well, he wrote a really good memoir, and I especially like the sections about his life in Jikurubi prison. And there are not many people who actually write about having been imprisoned in, in Zimbabwe, so that was a very helpful resource to me. So I would say that the Chikrubi of the novel has very little to do with my being a lawyer, but everything to do with research.
1: Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, attempting to visit it and the the government's attitude, and of course, the portrayal of the prison in this book is, I mean, it's an incredibly corrupt place, isn't it? So I don't imagine they would have been pleased with you description anyway.
0: No, no, but I think it's for security reasons. I would not have a problem at all, even in a non-corrupt Zimbabwe, with not being able to write about the prison because it is a secure place. You know, it, it falls under the the Ministry of Home Affairs, and all the almost all the institutions that fall under home affairs are secure places. I mean, I don't think I'd be able to go to Wandsworth and just yeah, write sure. what I like, you know. So that aspect I don't think is is, is particularly strange or peculiar to Zimbabwe. But yes, there is corruption in the, in the prison system, just as there's corruption in the police system. But that reflects the wider corruption, I think, yeah. in, in the society of Zimbabwe, which is that People have very little, and they are finding creative mm-hmm. ways of, of making money. And sometimes the creative way of making money is to sell a service that you should get for free. you know. And one of the things that I r- realized when I was researching life in Chikorupi is that prisoners actually get to grow their own food, but they don't always get to eat the food they grow. Because every prison has a farm attached to it. So they work very hard on the farms growing food, but sometimes the food is sold by the guards. And And that's something that I, that I found really said that the prisoners actually have the ability to sustain themselves by growing their own food, but even that is taken away sometimes.
1: I was struck by the in what you just said describing the sort of corruption in the prison as, as sort of being a reflection of, of it elsewhere in the, the sort of mundanity of it, that the guards would steal the toothpaste yes. for instance from the prisoners. So it was all it was that sort of like very small day-to-day
0: there's a charity that i'm afraid i can't tell you the charity because i don't want to get them into trouble but there's a charity that discovered that the best way to help prisoners was also to help the prison guards and their family so if you're doing a collection of clothing uh, warm clothing for prisoners to wear during winter also take some clothes for the for the guards to do with whatever they want if you want to build um like I, i was a little bit instrumental in um Contributing to the Chikrubi Prison Library. So, if you want prisoners to have books, also take some books for the prison guards, Mm -hmm. and that way you sort of like balance things out, and and the guards don't feel resentful that you know these unworthy scoundrels are getting all the all the good stuff while you know. Nobody's looking it up because everybody's suffering in Zimbabwe. It's mm-hmm. not. It, it's a corruption that I think arises mainly out of need, and it's it's petty forms of corruption. You know, like stealing prisoners' food and so on. And this is the tragedy of of Zim that it is the little corruptions that are punished, and not the larger corruptions.
1: I was struck by. I mean, you mentioned earlier in in the first part about you know the sort of tension of one thing to write a comic novel, and and some of the sequences as well as being horrible in the prison are really funny. And uh, particularly, I mean, the characters, the Mm -hmm. the fellow prisoners of memory are are just wonderful, vividly painted. And there's there's, there's a great sort of comedy there as well. You just mentioned, you know, reading a book of, of, of memoirs of prisoners. So were some of those prisoners drawn from
0: real life oh no not at all I mean the the, the prisoners were they came from purely from my imagination especially the, the comic elements but what came from real life is the kind of crimes that women are imprisoned yeah. for and it's, it's really interesting that women in prison and they're about say, I would say there are about less than 500 women in prison all over Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. w- women don't commit crimes. Certainly, they don't commit the kind of crimes for which they would be um, locked up, for which they would yeah. be incarcerated. So the kind of crimes that women commit, I discovered, are crimes to do with men. You know, to do with sex, to do with relationships. A lot of prostitution, a lot of termination of pregnancies, mm-hmm. um, a baby lot of what is baby dumping. As up, yeah. a, as it's a horrible phrase. But um, it's, it's, it's also a, a phrase that Zimbabweans will look... With, I'm sorry to say this, but they will regard it with some humour because our First Lady has threatened to baby-dump people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to baby-dump this one, I'll baby-dump that one. And you're sort of thinking, that's a horrible thing to do, to baby-dump <laughs> someone. But it's um, there's, there's a lot of... Um, Crime connected with, um, you know, um, sexual and reproductive functions. And, and and these are crimes of poverty, really. And, and this is one of the things, by the way, termination of pregnancy. We never use the A word. We never say abortion in Zimbabwe. It's always very clinical. A termination of pregnancy in violation of the Termination of Pregnancy Act. But people, the women who are imprisoned for terminating pregnancies are those who do it themselves. You know, but those who are able to go to a doctor and have it done, you know, a prop- medically... Don't get punished. So it's 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 a really blunt instrument. The law sometimes, when it comes to women in Zimbabwe, that the women who are imprisoned tend to be the poorest. They they don't have good lawyers. They can't afford to pay a magistrate uh, a bribe. So they end up in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm Jeff Dyer, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: Last thing from me, I wanted to talk about in the book. There's there's a there's a period where there are potential elections talked about there's all this sort of you know optimism about possible prison amnesties because there might be an election Mm. of course you know where we stand now when we recorded this interview Mugabe is still Mm. president and I sort of wanted to talk to you about you know where Zimbabwe is now but at the same time I'm reluctant to do that because I don't Want to talk to you as a a Zimbabwean novelist? Did you say that? No, but but,
0: but I'm happy to talk about the ending of this novel because I want to reassure my Zimbabwean listeners, especially those who don't agree with my view of Zimbabwe, that this novel is a work of fiction. Mm -hmm. And the reason you know it's a work of fiction is that the opposition actually wins the election. (laughs) (laughs) That will never happen. It can only happen in the imagination, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But I. I have to emphasize, first of all, that um, every time there's a presidential election, there's a prison amnesty, and the prisons empty out. Mm-hmm. And then over the next five years, they fill up again until the next amnesty, and then again they're emptied. Mm-hmm. But there are certain categories of prisoners who are not allowed to, to be released under amnesty, and the death row prisoners, obviously, uh, if you are if convicted of murder, you might actually get your sentence commuted to life, but you will not leave prison. So, this is one of the optimistic things that might happen to to memory. you know she might get her sentence commuted to life in prison, or she might get free on appeal, and we don't really know what happens to her. but I can certainly say that um, it's very, very unlikely in the next five, ten years that the opposition is going to take power in Zimbabwe. That can only happen in the world of my novel. <laughs>
1: But do you find that there is a sort of inevitability of you know referring to yourself as i guess a voice of of zimbabwe i mean you've I mean you've written one book of short stories, one novel so far mm-hmm. and they you know they're books about Zimbabwean people, but they're not necessarily about you know, yeah zimbabwe. i mean they,
0: I don't write on behalf of Zimbabweans I write about Zimbabweans, <laughs> so I objected to that label voice of Zimbabwe, partly because it's was giving me a a role and a function that I just don't think is mine. And also, frankly, it was premature. It's it's quite offensive to be told as a nation that, oh, this little wannabe writer who's just writing this little collection of short stories, oh, that's your voice, you know? This is your voice. Take her, take her, yeah. she's yours, you know? You don't even it do almost, Exactly, and it almost felt like I was being imposed from outside, and, and I was very sensitive to that because Zimbabweans are very sensitive. They're very mm. proud people, like, you know, small nations everywhere, and they're very proud of uh, the heroes that they create for themselves. And I wanted, if I was going to be a Zimbabwean voice or a Zimbabwean hero, to be given that laurel, by Zimbabweans and not, you know, by the outside world. And I'm, I'm really happy to say that, you know, my, my, my work has been received in a way that is very pleasing to me in Zimbabwe. But more importantly, I write about Zimbabwe. I don't write for Zimbabwe.
1: That's all questions from me, but could I possibly ask you to, to read a little bit of the novel for us?
0: With absolute pleasure. So I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to read a passage that doesn't require me to set it up in any way because it's the first page of the novel. The story that you have asked me to tell you does not begin with the pitiful ugliness of Lloyd's death. It begins on a long-ago day in August when the sun seared my blistered face and I was nine years old and my father and mother sold me to a strange man. I say my father and mother, but it was really my mother. I see them now as I saw them on the day that we first met Lloyd. They are in the clothes that they wore to church on Sundays and when we went to town for window shopping. Because if you are going to hand your daughter over to a perfect stranger... You need to look your best. My mother wears a white dress with big red poppies all over it. Around her waist is a cloth belt in the same material, and on her head, a red hat with a white plastic flower on it. Her shoes and bag are white. My father is in a safari suit, whose color I can no longer remember. Or perhaps it wasn't a safari suit at all that he wore, and I've only put him in one because it is what all the men wore in those days. His hair shines with brow cream. It was a happy day for me. I wore my favorite dress, a white lacy dress with a purple sash, my Christmas dress from the year before. I was in town, far from the torments of my school playground nemesis, now, who tormented me as much at home as at school because he lived on our street. I was in town with my father, who held my hand as we walked. I was happiest about this, that I had him to myself, with one sister at school and the other recently dead.
1: I've been talking to Patina Gappa, who have been talking about The Book of Memory, which is her debut novel, which is out this week from Faber & Faber. Patina, thank you so much for telling me about it.
0: Thank you very much, Neil, or as I should call you by your new Zimbabwean name, furthermore, thank you very much. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 80 Line Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter
1: at LittleAdams. You can find old interviews, new journalism, and more on our relaunched website, littleadams.com. Thanks for listening.